As you know, during this Advent season, we have been meditating and looking into the main characters of the coming of our Lord Jesus into the world. And we've seen the example and illustration last week of Herod and the wise men. We have noted the impact of the shepherds and, of course, Mary. This morning, we come to a group that is not in most manger scenes and creches, the prophets of the Old Testament, but they played a significant role as well. And we turn there this morning, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 9 for the main section of this prophecy. So many could be looked at, so many sections, especially in Isaiah, regarding the coming of Jesus, but we want to focus this morning on this one. This is Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let us bow together. O Lord, just as you came into this world, be our teacher yet this day by your spirit and word. Change and transform us, uplift and encourage. Humble us, give us thankful hearts, Lord Jesus. Thank you for sending the prophets and for their message, which comforted for so long before you came, and comforts us now as we see the fulfillment of these things. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon outline on pages 8 through 10, if you're following along in the bulletin. This is the season of gift giving. Let me ask you, what is the definition of your favorite perfect gift? For some, it is something that's expensive. I don't care what it is, but just if it costs a lot. Probably more than, than would say that, would say, I, I want a gift that I asked for. I don't want something, you know, that I didn't ask for. I've got a list. I've checked it more than twice. I want the things that are on that list. And if they're not given, I'll be disappointed. So a favorite gift would be those things that are pulled off of that list. But I want to submit to you this morning that the best gift, the most wonderful gift of all, is the gift that we need. When I was young, we had two sets of grandparents. Christmas Eve was one, Christmas Day was the other. Christmas Eve, we went on my father's side, and it was pretty reliable that I would get clothing. (laughs) Sweaters, socks, shirts, things that I would need eventually. 
but not something that I saw a particular use for at that time, because I had my mind on another list. And then on Christmas Day, we would go to my mother's side of the family, and almost always there were two or three things on my list of toys and things that I really wanted that I wasn't even getting anywhere else for Christmas. So I always preferred the second one, naturally, probably even today. <laughs> but I needed the clothing. She got the right size, and she got the right things that my mother had told her I would be needing for school, for church, for whatever I would be doing. And I came to see over time that there was a balance between the two. Now here we have from the prophets a prediction of one who's going to come and a list of the good things that he's going to bring. And we're going to assume this morning that that list is made up of things that we need. Some of them we might list on our own expression of desire, but surely he has expanded that list and blessed us even more. This famous passage, of course, includes four descriptive names of our Savior. And we begin, first of all, in verse 6, with Wonderful Counselor. I want to read this section of the outline here, particularly just for the sake of specificity. This is about God's wisdom for us. Remember that man and Adam and Eve were deceived and beguiled by the wisdom of someone else. They were given advice and encouragement and direction from the serpent. And the serpent gave them counsel that was far from wonderful. They took his counsel, they talked about it among themselves, and sin entered the world. As a result, as I say here, what we need most is a counselor who will give us light on the ultimate cause of our condition and point us to its remedy. I would say this needs to be done repeatedly, not just once in, you know, in kindergarten or first grade or second grade or elementary school, but again and again. Only this will enable us to see who we are, where we are, the nature of our situation, and the pathway out of it. We need counsel that will point us to eternal life, the Holy Spirit is now the one who has been sent in to help us and to be our counselor, as we know from John. And he uses God's word as his instrument to help us. But by nature, we resist the strong beams of light that God's word shines into our lives. The darkness in which we live is the fruit of the way we suppress what we know to be true. It would be easy enough if we could just receive this light. But the hard part is that even we want to suppress and push it away. Darken it. We pretend to ourselves and to others that all is well when in fact all may be ultimately lost. We are spiritually blind and need the light, spiritually deaf and need to hear the voice of Jesus calling us, spiritually dead and in need of new life. Who can help me? Jesus is the wonderful counselor who can help. Not only shining light into my darkness, but also telling me where more light can be found. He is the light, and when he shines his light into our lives, we come to life. Blindness, Jesus often healed. He stopped and went out of his way to show that the darkness of people's sight could be opened, and that he was the one who was the light of the world that would bring that opening. And one of the greatest aspects that he has given us is the counsel he gives from his word. Wonderful counselor. The idea is of 
someone who's continuing to bring storehouses out of a, out of a treasure chest, out of a storage of blessing. Wonderful counselor. Insight, direction, tender, kind, t- tender guidance, these things define him. And what we need is who he is. He is the wonderful counselor. If I would just listen, if I would humble myself, if I would open myself to his perspective, if I would continue to work into my life his word, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I will hear him, he is the wonderful counselor. And it's no accident that when he left this world, he left the Holy Spirit and all his fullness to counsel us. And so we must seek it. This is something that we need. He wouldn't have given it to us in such superabundance through his son if we didn't need to listen to him, to open our eyes by his grace to his word and to let it infect and inflect our souls from the inside out. So listen to his word. Meditate upon it. Let it work within you. Let it give you counsel and advice. You are surrounded by people who will tell you what they think you should do. And we all have within us the old man who struggles to come out and regain control. Our response is to be grateful to the mighty and wonderful counselor. Secondly, he is the mighty God. God's power to deliver us from the bondage to sin. It's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to be instructed in the theory and and direction and theology of the scriptures. It's another thing to have the power to overcome it. I need both light and power, and Jesus gives it with divine glory, with tremendous heroic glory. He then refers in chapter 9, verse 4, to the day of Midian, and that is a reference clearly to an event in the seventh chapter of Judges. When in the days of Gideon he came against the Midianites, and the Midianites came against him in great numbers. And the solution of Gideon was to amass as many Israelite armors as possible so that they might win the battle. God said, no, no, send them home. Send them home. Send them home. I only need 300. 300. 300 were overwhelmed by the thousands and thousands and thousands of Midianites. But God was making the point to Gideon and to us that he is able and he is mighty and he is powerful and he doesn't need the numbers of man to accomplish his purposes. So as on the days of Midian, he says, this is Gideon in the book of Judges, God wanted to defeat Midian not by numbers and by power, but by few and in weakness and in dependence upon him. The Midianites are intimidated by a dream. They become confused in battle, and they are spectacularly defeated, and Gideon isn't needed at all. Gideon doesn't send the dream. He doesn't send the confusion, and he has only a small part in the spectacular defeat that comes. We have a mighty God. He can handle it. He can take it. His power is real and palpable. He is the mighty God. The meaning here is that Christ, in Christ we have a divine hero who brings us deliverance from sin and hell. He comes empty-handed in the frailty of the incarnation and then dies in the weakness and apparent folly of the crucifixion. 
And so as it was on the day of Midian, so it will be on the day of Bethlehem and Golgotha. The weak will become strong. And the one who appears to be the victim will in fact be the victor and defeat all of his enemies and ours. We've only begun a little bit to see his power. So great and so mighty is he that it is beyond description. We find it in his creation. We find it in his mighty acts in the scriptures. We find it in his redemption. His power is unsurpassed. And then he pauses a moment to remind us that the government will be on his shoulders. The cross was placed on his shoulders, and now through faith we come under his government. He's the one who's ruling us. And he's ruling us in a way by his gifts. Not only by his word, which teaches us, but by his gifts, which guide us. Knowing, that, knowing this has made it possible for believers to live under any regime in history, even under political tyranny. His people are free in Christ. We live under his government, whatever the human government is, because he has placed it upon his shoulders and he will rule and overrule in this world. So he's a wonderful counselor and we can turn to him anytime for his help. And we must, for his insights are unsurpassed and his guidance cannot be measured by the guidance of man. We also turn to him and receive the gift of his mighty power. He is the mighty God, the one who defeats the God of the Philistines, the God of the Assyrians, and any who come against him. And in the end, he will be clearly demonstrated throughout all the earth as the one who stands above all others. But more than this, he's relational. He doesn't just give information and power. He draws together his people. He is the everlasting father. We are not only in bondage and darkness, we are homeless since the Garden of Eden. We are spiritual orphans needing a father to know we are loved. But how can the son be a father? Isaiah's focus is on what happens when God is with us and through Jesus Christ. We are adopted. The one on whose the government will rest becomes our father, and through him we are adopted into the family of God. Sin has rendered us fatherless and homeless. None of us is by nature a child of God. We need to be adopted into his family, which can happen only through the work of Emmanuel. We become his. He reassures us of his love and care, providing for our needs, and promising to bring us all the way home at the end of our earthly days. I think this is the best of the four. I think this is the most precious one to me. Because when we really see our condition, and we really feel the weight of the loneliness of life, and the alienation that we naturally have toward others and toward God, it's simply beyond description that he should become our father and welcome us into his family. When we see that we have rejected and turned away from him and gone to our own way, and we see that he has come after us and said, I'm not just going to rescue you, I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to bring you into my family. Many heroes described in the, in the annals of man 
But usually what they do at the end when they defeat their enemies is they set the people free and they go on their way. But this father not only sets them free, but welcomes them in. And this is what we need in the loneliness of prison, hospitals, and life. We need someone who will be there. We need an Emmanuel, not just for a season, but for everlasting unto everlasting. We need this. We don't want to admit it. We want to think of our own self-sufficiency, not only in wisdom in terms of his counsel and power in terms of his strength, but also in terms of our relationships. But the fact is that the day comes when no one can help us except him. When the medical and family ties have been severed and we pass from this life to the next, the fact that we have an everlasting father will mean everything. It will be a gift that we hadn't asked for so much, but that we come into with a strong inheritance. Everlasting Father. He will never leave nor forsake us. He will be there. He has promised to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, that we might fear no evil. Why? Because he is with us. Not just watching us, wrestle and struggle, but he is with us through the wrestling and the struggling and the conflict. This is personal. This is not something that other gods can give us or even promise. But he promises through his son to become our father, adopted into his family, that we might live forever in relationship with him, the son, and the spirit. This isn't something we had asked for, but it's a blessing that far exceeds what else we might have thought of. And then in conclusion, he tells us fourthly that he is the Prince of Peace. He has come near to bear our guilt and to bring us shalom. The gospel offers us peace in Christ, an assurance that God's judgment against our sin has been dealt with in him, and that ultimate peace is found only in him. Relational peace between us and our neighbors and divine peace with God with us. This is a conflicted world. And we often feel that conflict within ourselves. What to do, how to act, how to respond to the conflict we meet in other people. He knows how to bring peace and hope to us. And so let us rest in his peace and rejoice in it as one of the greatest gifts he's given to us. Not only wise advice, counsel, and insight, not only mighty power to defeat our sin and to go to heaven one day, and not only a father who is going with us through every incident in life, but one who would bring us peace and an end to the restlessness that churns within us. So to summarize, He is not only a rescuer, as I said, he is a complete savior. Everything I lack in my weakness is found in his fullness and is given to me in his grace. When I was a young boy, I used to watch The Lone Ranger. I'm dating myself, but that was on TV a lot. I loved westerns. And at the end, when he would uh, defeat the bad guys and set the people free who were being oppressed, he disappeared. 
And usually it was something like this. Where did the masked man go? He left behind a silver bullet. But he was gone. He set them free. They were free to go, and they were no longer oppressed. But he wasn't even around to thank. And so the people said, I wanted to thank him. That's not the kind of rescuer we have in Christ. We have someone who wants to be deeply personal with us. Everything I lack in my weakness is found in his fullness and is given to me in his grace. Peter says it like this, all that we need for life and godliness he has given to us. That's what this passage is about. This is what we need and he's given it. If we needed other things, he would have given that too. Which raises the question, of course, of personal wealth, prosperity, and longevity, and why can't I live longer and feel better and have more money? Those are the questions most of us have most of the time. The answer is, you don't need that. It may seem harsh. It may seem uncaring. But in the vast assessment of things, what you need is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. You don't need Santa Claus. You don't need someone to give you everything. Although we'd like to have it, and he certainly understands that because he lived the life of poverty and weakness. He's well acquainted with want and extremity and need. But we don't need what we think we do. We don't need the toys. We need what we need for into the future. For if he really is the mighty God and everlasting Father, you can't just like him as a result of these things. We either fear him or are angry with him or kneel and worship him. If he is all this, then you must serve him completely. Another thing that I wish we could do, and that I'm sure you do too, is that we could write the script of our lives. And we could say, this is how things are going to go. And we could define and plan and prepare for a happy ending. We give, are not given that privilege. Nor are we promised that the script of our life will be according to our first inclination. This is a hard thing. Very hard when adversity comes. But there again, we don't need it as much as we think we do. We would love to have the script of our life go a certain way, naturally, of course. He understands that. But he's greater than that. His mind is bigger than ours. And his sovereign will and purpose are greater than anything we could plan for ourselves. You say, well, I don't like what's happening, and I don't appreciate the turn that we've taken here. Indeed. Say so. His shoulders are strong enough to bear not only the government of the world, uh, but also our complaints. So carry your complaint to him. Tell him what you think. It's honest, he knows already. But if he really is a wonderful counselor and prince of peace, then we should want to serve him and not just ourselves. Only he can understand and help us, for only he knows what we are going through. He is beautiful, and when we dwell on him, he is satisfying in himself. This is a key concept 
And I close with this. He wants us to be satisfied with him. He knows that we want things and that we have to have certain material things in order to survive. But his chief desire is that we would be content in him. In one of Paul's grandest, most triumphant sections, he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. We have to learn that. We're not born with it. And it is one of his greatest gifts in the end when he acts. So be content with him and with what he gives you. Be satisfied. Because he knows our need. And he hasn't remained inactive. He has responded to our need and has given us, at least from this section, four things that we simply, that simply can't be surpassed by any toys, longevity, or prosperity. He has given us himself. He came. He didn't send the angels. He didn't send the prophets. He didn't send Mary and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He came himself. And so everything that he says as a result is an endorsement, is, is endorsed by his life. He has given full commitment. He has gone all in for us. He has expressed himself completely. Therefore, we must believe what he says. And what he says is, I have met your needs. Don't listen to your own thoughts or the thoughts of others. Come to me and I will be your counselor and I will give you wonderful insights. Don't seek power from money and position, prestige and success. I am your mighty God and I'm greater than all those things. Don't come feeling as though you will always be alienated because I have given myself for you. And I will be there forever. And then finally, rejoice in his peace. In a world of conflict and swirling emotions inside, something breaks through. He is the Prince of Peace. He brings it to us in spite of ourselves and our inward wrestlings and yearnings. He is terrific in the way he cares for us. This is what we need. And this is what we have. Let us pray. Oh Lord, forgive our complaints. So often we feel as though you have been inadequate toward us because of a lack of time or money or success or prosperity, one kind or another. But instead you have given us what we need. Help us to see beyond our human appetites. Help us to see beyond what we would ordinarily prefer in the flesh. To see that we have a wonderful Savior who has personally come himself to deliver the gifts of, of his kingdom. Give us contentment. Help us this Advent to rejoice in those things that he has given us and those needs that he has met. Focusing on those rather than on what our vain imaginations might deliver unto us. And giving thanks from our hearts to the one who not only gave us these things, but came himself to deliver them. 
For we pray in Jesus' name, the Deliverer. Amen.